2: You're listening. Waiting on reparations. A production of iHeartRadio. Waiting on reparations. Waiting on reparations. All you motherfuckers, why you looking at me, hating? Waiting on reparations. Yo, I got so much shit in the can. I ain't tipping my hand in my crib where I stand. It's probably indigenous land. I'm in my superhero pose. Put my fist in the sand. I ain't see nothing, officer. Like I'm resisting the man. Oops, I did it again. I pop like a fish in the pan. Make you rewind this shit and try to listen again. It's dope, knife. I'm rhyming reckless. Your whole mind is feckless. I roll a blood and then I smoke while drinking wine for breakfast. This is the 45 mark. I'll give it 90 seconds. Then I'll keep my cardio straight. You never find me breathless. I call it vintage. Kids say I got a funny flow. I'm talking to a stack of books. You talking to your money, though. I really need a snack. I eat a rapper like a honey roll. It was gonna give the stimulus, but now the fucking money froze. Juxtapose, just suppose that I'm just a bro. No no one's home. Where's my clothes? Oh, it's just the robe. <laughs> hey. Hey. My name's Lingua Franca.
3: I'm Dope Knife.
2: <laughs> and we, so are we are waiting doing
3: it backwards.
2: On reverations.
3: Oh my god. Y'all know <laughs> what we mean. <laughs> this intro, that's perfect. I feel like that perfectly encapsulates swear. It does. I am at least at this week. <laughs> It's
2: been you. it's been a heck of a week. It, it a definitely week. has. So I mean, uh, what's gone on this week? We took last week off, as you guys all know. Um, but what has happened? Oh, uh, I got stopped by the cops when I was canvassing.
3: Yeah, that was fun.
2: That was fun. We were canvassing. I don't even want to say it was a pro-Trump neighborhood. There was definitely a lot more uh, Trump signs than I had seen in a lot of the places we had been at. But, you know, we're walking through, and I just had a feeling, you know, and then the next thing I know, we hear somebody, and they're like, hey, can I talk to you guys? We turn around, it's like a lone cop. And we're like, oh, word. We, I automatically was putting together what happened, but the shit that was the surprising part was, like, the three other Dragnet squad cars that, like, pulled up, like, arr, arr, and the dude's popping out as if there was some shit already going on. So that was cool.
3: Love that. Love getting racially profiled while trying to just get people to vote.
2: I mean, I don't even know if it was racially profiled. I think it was like straight up attempted murder. Yo, <laughs> like because whoever called the cop, whoever called the cops, they they saw us like talking to their neighbors before they called the cop. So it's not even like a situation where we were just they
3: like saw some sketchy black dudes and we're yeah. like. Oh, cat yeah, no, survivors. they that were like wasn't, these niggas is talking to people.
2: Yeah, the moment we rolled in, we were talking to people, you know what I'm saying? So they saw us talking and smiling, and that we were handing out, uh, uh you know, literature and shit. And you know, I'm pretty sure they in that neighborhood know who's the Biden people, who's not, because it's not like we're knocking on, not not Biden people, but who's for uh, war knocking, also who's not and it's not like we were knocking on doors at random you know what i'm saying like we're going to yeah
3: we we i mean in our canvassing, we've been targeting shit. low propensity democratic voters so folks that like according to their voting records are democrats but like don't usually get out and vote in like runoffs or special elections or things like that
2: yeah so that was whack yeah i mean i i'd been through that before but yeah we did get a new kitten though
3: We did get a new kitten. That's bringing some joy into the household. You know, doesn't replace eggs. I still miss eggs. And his, like, you know that that surly face he's always had? He always looked mad, but then he'd pick him up and, like, spin him around and flop his head, and he would just, like, love it, And even though he, like, looked mad. So little things like that. I still miss eggs, but Nino is adorable.
2: He is. I'm sure he'll be big enough to be causing a ruckus while we're recording in no well, time day
3: soon, yeah and <laughs> I would like the world to know that his namesakes are a combination of uh, future congresswoman Nina Turner
2: and, and the fictional movie gangster Nino Brown from New Jack City so. so
3: we both got to like do our have part of our you know nerdiness reflected in the cat's name <laughs>
2: And there's mad incriminating pictures of me being sweet and adorable with the cat that I can't let get out.
3: listeners, listeners, check this out. Max's love for this cat is so pure. I've never (laughs) seen such a grown-ass man just crumble at the feet of something so tiny.
2: (laughs) We can't let any of that imagery get out there. I'm I'm a I'm a yeah, rapper.
3: Yo, don't, don't, don't. be over here. Beast a, rapper. Like tiny cat, yeah. <laughs> All your street cred is done, son.
2: Oh, as if I had any street cred to begin with. But damn, oh, that's son. gonna kill. That's gonna kill what little there was. Shit. Yeah. Well, um. So what are we what are we talking about today?
3: We're revisiting an interview that we did uh, several months ago with an activist, an indigenous activist from New Mexico named Lila June um i had a really insightful conversation with her about the ways that indigeneity influences her political organizing and worldview and i just felt like especially in the af- in like the wake of our recent conversation with daniel blackman about a green new deal i thought this these perspectives on e- environmental injustice and you know eco you know, sustainability and land stewardship could be like a cool follow-up for that
2: No, I agree. No doubt. Um, We're also going to be talking about how COVID uh, is disproportionately affecting indigenous communities. And for the music discussion, we've got a real dope crop of indigenous native artists that uh, we're going to check out.
3: It also comes on the tail of a recent, uh, I don't even want to call it snafu, but um, our current Georgia Republican senators, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, came out with a strong statement in support of the name of the Atlanta Braves.
2: <laughs> as, uh, if, as if there's nothing more important to be...
3: As if, you know, they're you know going back and forth between saying this is the most important election of a lifetime, while meanwhile taking a break from the campaign trail to staunchly stand behind colonialist uh, <laughs> garbage. That's garbage.
2: They, they put out a statement. Uh, this is uh, per CBS News. They said... We adamantly oppose any effort to rename the Atlanta Braves one of our state's most storied and successful sport franchises. They said this on uh, Monday, so this would have been last Monday when we took the week off. Uh, Not only are the Braves a Georgia institution with the history spanning 54 years in Atlanta, they are an American institution. I did not know the Atlanta Braves were this fucking important to shit outside of baseball until I just read that statement an American institution
3: you know what else was a storied American institution uh native tribes that like who this land belongs to thousands of years before we were and uh who were genocided by uh colonialist maniacs uh, but oh let's let's not let's you know make sure to put that aside for the 54 year history of the Atlanta the Atlanta Braves.
2: Braves It's pretty much just right wing virtue signaling at this point. I mean shit it's just reaching out to the you know to whatever unactivated racist or left in Georgia like hey guys, don't forget We don't think too much about Native Americans also. you understand? You hear? Just in case you're mistaken, thinking it's all about radical socialism and Antifa, fuck the engines. <laughs> they're, they're a parody of themselves at this point. So um, anyway, yeah, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, kick back. I'm about to light one up and we're going to get into it after the jump.
0: Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of and audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. at and
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers...
3: And so something that I drew a lot from in my talk with Lila that you all are going to hear in a little bit um, was kind of thinking about the ways that the federal government's attempts to prescribe indige- indigeneity kind of parallel and have, have sometimes impacted um, black people living in this land as well. And that led me to kind of do a little bit of research about what blood quantums are and, you know, how they have impacted uh, Native American communities as well as. Black folks, surprisingly. So if you're not familiar with the idea, um, blood quantums is this measurement of how much Indian Native American blood that you have in your body as a way of determining your rightful belonging to a tribe and thusly how much the federal government, you know, like how, you? Big, how big the tribe is, you know, whether or not you qualify for programs that are specifically for Native people's things like that. Uh, It can affect your identity, your relationships, and whether or not you or your children um, can become a citizen of your tribe. Um, So many Native nations, including the Navajo Nation and the Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa Indians, still use it as citizenship requirements. Although among like American uh, Native communities, uh, there's a lot of disagreement about the ways that blood quantums kind of like contradicts or runs contrary to like their conceptions of what makes one native. Um, some tribes accepted others go with more of a linear, lineal um, uh, determination of, you know, if you belong to the tribe and some others have sort of thrown out the metric entirely um, because it's just, it's imposed upon them by the federal government. Not so it's not like, it's not like
2: something they even want.
3: Yeah. Per yeah. Se.
2: Um, the Navajo Nation requires a minimum of 25% Navajo blood, and Turtle Mountain requires a minimum of 25% of any Indian blood, as long as it's a combination with some Turtle Mountain.
3: Yeah, so different tribes kind of do it in different ways. And ultimately, it kind of restricts who can be a citizen of the tribe. If you've got, for example, you know, 25% Nav- Navajo blood, um, according to that tribe's blood quantum standards, if you have children with someone, who has a lower blood quantum, maybe someone who's only an eighth Navajo or maybe someone who's not Navajo at all, technically your children wouldn't be able to enroll as members of the Navajo Nation. So the federal government, this is what just gets really under my skin and I find kind of creepy, Yeah. Um, issues what is called a certified degree of Indian blood. There's a card similar to an ID card um, that shows you know, whether or not you are technically of a certain tribe. And um, it's usually calculated using, you know, your blood quantum is calculated by using tribal documents, uh official tribal documents or government official um or sorry. So usually it's like a tribal official or government official that calculates it for me for you. But one of the major problems with blood quantum is that a lot of times the peoples who were taking the federal taking the roles for the federal government were unfamiliar with native ways of defining their own communities. And so you have people come in who would just look around, just look at folks and say, eh, you look pretty Navajo. Uh, so I, the white guy, um, would say, you're 100%. So there's actually former black slaves who are living as just fully, like, 100% incorporated members of Indian tribes um, who, you know, when the government officials would come in and take the roles, they, they would take one look at them and say, like, this, this nigga is clearly a nigga. Um, and so you are not of this tribe and they would get excluded even, um, and even those with mixed heritage, if they were black and in the end, if they look black, they would get, um, listed on a separate role. And so today the ramification is that they don't have the original, they don't have that original enrollee in their past. so they don't have enough blood quantum. To be extended tribal membership Even though in every way cultural and social They might be fully incorporated Into the tribe
2: Now the one drop rule is measured.
3: Yeah it's similar to the one drop rule Which I think listeners will probably be more familiar with But yeah go ahead and tell them about that
2: Oh about the one drop rule So the one drop rule is measured by the amount of black blood That black people had in society And that ensured that every person Who had at least one drop Would be considered black And would be covered under the would be covered under these discriminatory laws and even in the earlier days, enslaved. So, and so yeah.
3: It's a part of this legacy of the federal government needing to inscribe racial roles onto people, sometimes to provision services, but also, in a certain sense, to limit the scope of those services. Because, like, well, if we're able to whittle down the number of people we say are a part of this tribe, that means we don't have to ensure services to as many folks yeah on on the flip side with african americans you know if you have one drop of black blood if we're able to like quantify and therefore categorize you racially uh then we can also we can discriminate against you it's just this weird this weird thing the federal government does so yeah the same way that like uh one drop was enough to classify you as black. Blood quantum emerged as a way to measure Indianness, um, and also would serve as a way to ensure that Indians would literally breed themselves out of existence and rid the federal government of their legal responsibility to uphold treaty obligations if, technically, they are no longer members of the tribe because all of their descendants have married into people of other races, and no one has high enough blood quantum to qualify as a member
2: of the tribe. So, was all of this stuff like um, pushed by the federal government? So the the actual tribes themselves had nothing to do with these determinations. No,
3: nah, I mean some tribes. It sounds like. View it in different ways, but to me, it still seems like it was imposed upon them and yeah. influencing their own uh, sense of identity and worldview. It wasn't in, it wasn't like endogenous to these communities. There's one tribe I recall in my research that actually, uh, somewhere in Canada, that did away with all sorts of lineal or blood quantum requirements entirely. Anyone can be a member of the tribe. They just said anybody.
2: Yeah, just anybody. You
3: be, you're in. Um, and so it really varies from tribe to tribe, but, um, I just like, you know, we were h- sure about hip hop. We talk about black issues a lot, but moments to sort of pause and consider the ways our struggles intersect and, um, are impacted by similar vehicles of pol- v- like s- similar public policy vehicles through like federal state and local governments. Um, I think is always interesting. It kind of helps build solidarity. And so I found this way, I found this like really fruitful for like thinking more deeply about um just like what our shared battles are and how we can sort of come together to fight fight off all these ways that people try to define who we are for us.
2: Have you ever have you ever thought about or have you already like tried to look into what your native roots are and reconnect? So, yeah, with? I
3: mean I'm I'm I am aware of um i, I I'm native american um i talked a little bit about this in my interview with lila but i grew up going to like powwows on the reservation and uh other than that though not really um participating in any ceremonies or learning about the culture whatsoever but like um yeah like every time i drive home there's like you know the tribal we pass the tribal government office and like you know i'll read in the newspaper about the chiefs and what's going on with the tribe and their you know decision like legislation decisions they're making for the community uh, and i think it's really interesting and something i've grappled with a lot as an adult is that uh because of the one drop rule and things like this and i guess as well to a lesser degree than was like um obvious to me growing up or in my like i don't know political transformation as a young adult um uh in account of like the way that blood quantum has also worked uh The one-drop rule is made so that, like, if you are like a little bit black, you're black. Doesn't matter if you're Mexican. Doesn't matter if you're Filipino. Doesn't matter if you are, um, whatever. Well, like, if you got a little bit black, you're black. And so, like, I've grown. I was raised a black person, despite the fact that, like, my like grandfather was the chief of the tribe.
2: Okay, so you're so that so as far as your roots go, so your great grandfather was fully Native American
3: yeah okay. i mean i don't well i mean and that's the thing fully what do you mean by that because like where i True. come from everybody everybody like i for well I, I guess what
2: i would mean is like
3: a pretty light skinned person and like where i come from everybody looks like me where it's like you would probably lump them into the category of black because of the way the race is made of binary in the united states yeah. but like we're all native american and we're all members of the tribe even though maybe there's some you know some european american mixed in Etc. But like, it's more of a cultural um, affinity, a cultural affiliation, than it is. So like, like, well, well, who was your daddy? 100% pure blood or anything like that? It's just about like we're a community, and if you are from here, this is a part of who you are. Um, And so, trying to map our own sense of who we are as a people onto like this greater cultural um framework that that like just it, like is tries to compartmentalize people in ways that just doesn't work yeah um is is the struggle and something i'm trying to learn how to resist as i get older like on my forms trying to like you know check that i am also native american because yeah. time i didn't because that's not what people from the outside told me that i was when they look at me
2: yeah um The basketball player Kyrie Irving a couple years ago went to the uh, Standing Rock Reservation to get in touch with his Sioux heritage. Uh, I guess his mother was born into the Sioux tribe before she was adopted, and he's been going on a little bit of a, you know, finding his inner self journey the last few years and reconnecting with that part of his heritage seems to be doing the trick a little bit. Yeah.
3: Yeah. So, and, and, and Lila, we, Lila and I talked a little bit about this in the, episode, in the interview. So hopefully for others, oh,
1: yeah.
3: for others who are interested in this for themselves, um, I think you'll find this really insightful and hopefully helpful for you in your journey and reconnecting with your native roots.
2: So let's uh, actually go to uh, the Lila interview right now and check that out.
3: So this is my interview with Lila June. Uh, An environmental justice activist, spoken word artist, and former candidate for state House in the state of New Mexico.
5: With forgiveness as my bow and my prayers as my arrows, pull them back and let go. I watch them fly like sparrows have hope.
3: So, uh, Lila, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got here, and how hip-hop and spoken word have played a role in your life.
5: Well, I always wanted to share my message with the world as an Indigenous woman because much of our story has never been told to the non-native world in our own voice. And so I stopped, I stumbled upon spoken word when I was in high school. Um, And I won a bunch of national poetry slams and things of things like that. And hip hop, of course, is uh, an incredible tool that I'm forever indebted to the African-American population. And a lot of marginalized communities are indebted to the african-american population for giving us that tool to not just elevate their communities but they gave it to many marginalized communities to help us elevate our communities as well and so it's been a real joy to use these tools also as a musician with my guitar and singer-songwriter to elevate my my story so that we can increase visibility for indigenous peoples and our struggles
3: uh, can you talk a little bit about your earliest exposures to
5: hip-hop? Wow. Well, I think my earliest exposures to hip-hop, and I don't know if I'd call it hip-hop, but was mainstream mm-hmm. pop music. Uh, and I never really resonated with that because a lot of it was sure, yeah. degrading women and, and uh, encouraging what I viewed as unhealthy things. And so I never really understood that hip-hop was more than just a tool of oppression that if you used it correctly it could be a tool of liberation and so yeah. one, once I discovered that I think the first person uh, I don't know if you know Black Blackalicious but he was probably the first person who opened my eyes to how this um, tool could be used to elevate all people
3: yeah yeah I had a similar journey with hip-hop as a young person kind of not really identifying with it when I was an adolescent because of its misogyny and, and its mainstream incarnations and later finding artists that were inspiring, that um, kind of brought me around to see how it could be used as a tool for liberation. So I feel you a lot on, um, I feel you a lot on that. Um, do you see an advantage to using hip hop in particular to get certain message and points across more effectively than
5: in other mediums? Absolutely. Um, well, you know, we learn our ABCs through song, right? Because when you're yeah. learning something through song and rhythm, you remember it much more easily. I remember learning songs when I was very, very young. And I still remember them as a 30-year-old woman. And I remember commercials, you know, industries use that against us and they get us to memorize their slogans and the b- names of their brands with song, you know. And so we can utilize mm-hmm. song to and rhythm to... Uh, translate messages to people that they can keep that they can remember that they can carry with them throughout their lives and as a Dené woman as an indigenous woman or as some people call it native american woman which we think that term is problematic but um yeah all of our or or a lot of our uh, cultural knowledge was passed down to generation to generation through song and so our Mm -hmm. wisdom and our way of life was encoded in song and so I think hip hop is a another iteration of the natural human inclination to share information via song. And I think it's incredibly effective.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that the way that song can kind of act as a mnemonic in a certain sense for making a message become embedded in your mind is really powerful, too. And as I think a lot of my experiences with performing also help prepare me for speaking out for public service. Do you feel the same about your the linkages between your music experience and your experience with public service now
5: you know that's a very interesting question that i haven't thought about but now that i reflect on it absolutely i mean getting in front of crowd after crowd after crowd starting at age 14 as a spoken word artist you really learn to soak up the the nervousness and the awkwardness and the fear that comes with public speaking and and metabolize that that raw energetic moment where you, everyone is hanging on every word you say. And you turn that from a, a place of fear and doubt into a place of beauty and even even control to a certain extent and leveraging that control with a lot of integrity and gentleness to the crowd so that um, as a spoken word artist and as a musician who's spoken in front of clou- crowds of anything from 20 people to uh, six thousand people. Um, mm-hmm. I recently did a speech at the um, at my first arena. You know, and so we're yeah. we're in that situation where we have that experience, and and that doesn't daunt us. And so now that yeah. you think about it, I think that absolutely helps, and and helps me kind of own the stage throughout the campaign trail.
3: I've struggled a lot as I've come to become an adult and realize how little I know about my native heritage, despite the fact that like growing up, it was emphasized to me that, like, we did have this part of us, but, like, my parents didn't pass down to me those traditions, like, figuring out how to get back in touch with my roots, get back in touch with my culture, especially living away from um, our lands now. Uh, My people are from North Carolina. I'm here in Georgia. And so having that physical distance between, like, the, the tribal lands and, like, myself now, like, what is it? What would you say to someone like myself that, you know, I... Given, given the way that race works in America and like the one drop rule and the binarization of race have grown up thinking, you know, myself as African-American, like what would you say is, would be my first steps into recovering my ancestral identity?
5: Well, I think you need help from people like me who quote unquote look Native and quote unquote are, are Native and are Are connected to our roots, we need to validate people's indigenous identity. And we need to say, we need to give people permission to say, yes, claim that. Because all of this uh, politics of, oh, well, you're not, you're not really Native. You're just a 36th Cherokee. That needs to go because people are Native. And if we block them and shame them from claiming that, then they don't even need to do genocide on us. We're doing it to ourselves. We do it to each other. Good
3: point. And so
5: it's very important, I think, for my folks who kind of have the brown skin and the brown eyes and the brown hair and and we still know the songs and the ceremonies, et cetera, to really look at our counterparts who are not just African-American but also those who look white and say, listen, we want you to honor who you are and we need you to honor who you are because that's the only way we're going to get out of this mess. So that's number one. Number two is – If no one gives you permission to claim it, just go on and claim it yourself. We don't need someone's permission to claim it. Know who you are and and take take hold of that. And number three is be sensitive to place. You know, if you're in Georgia now, then you are in the homeland of a different nation and that's Mm -hmm. okay. And so find the nation who you are standing on their land, which in your case, they might be relocated to Oklahoma, but nevertheless, there's always repatriation work going on where they're giving land back to indigenous peoples. And if there isn't, become a part of that. And my personal feeling is wherever land you're standing on, uplift the nations who used to take care of those lands because those are the songs those are the ceremonies those are the traditional ecological knowledge bases that are suited to that specific biome that specific ecological context and those are the ones who have the answers of how to become sovereign in terms of food security right there in that place
3: yeah that's really valuable i appreciate it from a personal from a personal place um I'll definitely keep all of that in mind. as well as in my policy making, thinking about repatriation and like what that might look for us look like for us as a local government.
5: Thank you for all the work you do. and again, thank you for honoring your indigenous ancestry. It's been really fun to be a part of supporting that. I lived in Alabama for about a year once, and all the people I met were indigenous from some community somewhere. Most of them, I'd say a good eighty percent of them, whether they look black or they look white, we a lot of us are carrying that. And so my last message I'll just leave us with is, you know, please honor that and and research that and, and give yourself permission to carry that with you wherever you go.
3: Okay, great. All right. Well, I know where to find you. I'm following you. I just bought your album. Uh, <laughs> the People's Knowledge
5: is on Uh Instagram it's just Lila June. Twitter, it's Lila June for NM. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. This is a very interesting and beautiful conversation. And I hope it inspires many, many listeners out there, uh, whether they're, you know, seasoned politicians or everyday citizens like us, you know, to stand up and, and run for office and know, and believe in yourself that you're completely worthy of doing so.
3: Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.
5: All right. Thanks for your time, guys. Bye.
2: So right now, as with like a lot of other aspects of society, one of the clearest ways to see the inequalities and hardships that face indigenous populations is through the COVID lens. Now, it's well known that people of color face greater, greater risk than others from the deadly virus. And that risk only increases with indigenous folk. Uh, We came across a really dope article in The Atlantic by University of Oregon history professor Jeffrey Ostler titled, Disease Has Never Been Just Disease for Native Americans.
3: It references virgin soil epidemics, which is a theory popularized by Jared Diamond's Guns, Germs, and Steel, that when Europeans arrived in the Western Hemisphere, they brought diseases, particularly things like smallpox and measles, that uh, indigenous people had never experienced before. Because they had no immunity to these diseases, the resulting epidemic took the lives of 70% or more of the Native population throughout the Americas.
2: However, new research has shown that centuries after the Europeans came, post-contact effects of diseases devastated indigenous peoples, not because of the lack of immunity, but due to the conditions created by the Europeans and U.S. colonialisms. It made native communities more vulnerable to this.
3: The article goes on to state, to understand how dire the COVID-19 situation is becoming for these communities, consider the situation unfolding for the Navajo Nation, a people with homelands in Arizona, New Mexico and Utah. As of April 23rd, 1360 infections and 52 deaths have been reported among the Navajo reservations 170,000 people, a mortality rate of 30 per 100,000. Jesus. Only six states have a higher per capita toll.
2: That's nuts. Yeah. Um now part part of what making what makes combating COVID so difficult uh are the ongoing effects of colonialism. So the Navajo, they already have a high incidence of conditions like diabetes, hypertension, lung disease, that increase their chances of getting gravely ill from the virus. That and the lack of access to clean water, hand sanitizer, hospital beds, and medical personnel, it all helps like spread and, compa- and compound the whole situation. Racial misclassification and exclusion of indigenous communities from data sets and analysis that are used to make public health policies also play a role in this.
3: So Trump appropriated $10 billion to tribal governments after initially resisting. But um, as of now, the Treasury Department tasked with distributing these funds has failed to disperse them properly. The CDC initially denied tribal epidemiology centers, including the Urban Indian Health Institute, access to data about testing and confirmed COVID-19 cases, even though it was making those data available to states. Data collected by tribes, local and state health departments, and national agencies are also often inconsistent.
2: The social demographer for the University of California in Los Angeles and citizen of the Northern Cheyenne Nation, Desi Rodriguez Lone Bear, he said, For so long, data has been used against our people. For example, the U.S. Census, which began in 1790, excluded American Indians until 1860 and didn't count those living on reservations until the 1900s. The census data was then used to justify the invasion of settlements and supposedly empty land.
3: And so, I feel like again we're seeing this, like, this, this uh, Eurocentric colonialist desire and impulse to quantify things and to reduce things into data and to like uh, to be able to, you know, put things on a fucking bar graph as used implicitly as a tool for the destruction of people who fall outside of that, who don't who don't subscribe to those worldviews. And then if you go off of like the logic of blood quantums, it's like as folks continue to marry outside of their tribes or, you know, reduce those quantifiable, that, that quantifiable indigeneity in, among their descendants, there's fewer and fewer people that technically count as Native American. And so this thing where like, Oh you know census data Were used to justify the invasion And settlement of these lands because they were supposedly Empty it's like well also There's no one to worry about because there are fewer Natives because folks Because according to this uh, Measurement there's just fewer people That count as members of the tribe and so there's all These ways that like
2: uh, So it's like all backhanded sneaky shit To get out of what they owe Yeah (laughs) it's
3: it's like sneaky Genocide
2: yeah Damn a whole a new flavor of genocide the sneaky brand.
3: A whole new
2: kind
3: <laughs> of genocide. Okay, I'm so sorry. Like, despite the fact that I like grew up around native cultures in you know rural North Carolina, a watershed moment for me and my sense of solidarity with indigenous movements for land protection and tribal sovereignty, uh, and for many people, um, was the Dapple protest back mm. in. 16. Yeah. Um, and so uh, a number of uh, hip hop artists also were a part of that movement. Um, at the height of standoff between protesters and security police forces over the Dakota Access Pipeline, a collection of artists and public si- figures, most of whom are native, um, released a song and video titled Stand Up, Stand Rock in support of the movement. Um, it was organized by Black IPs or no, it was organized by Taboo of the Black IPs, who has Shoshone heritage, and the song was to promote awareness as well as stand as an anthem for indigenous people across the country.
2: So, uh, some yeah. of the artists featured on the track are Flute, MC1, Driesus, among others. And we're going to be checking out a song from Driesus later. So,
3: Cool.
2: Um, from what I gather, from what I was seeing, there, the most that I could find was like Chance the Rapper and some other celebrities i mean there were some celebrities who were commenting about it but as far as some hip-hop shit goes i think chance the rapper might have commented on it but there wasn't too much noise being made from the non-indigenous uh rap community
3: and that's a fucking problem i mean it like, is yeah we're like we are stolen people on stolen land like we're all subjects to colonialism and a cultural erasure and subjugation and like we gotta band together and fight back. I mean, like the same people that are telling us to go back to Africa was like, you should go back to Europe, man. Like <laughs> <laughs> this is something <laughs> Like we all I don't know. I just feel like we all gotta get free. And so, like, getting native folks their sovereignty back, like, and also, you know, getting actually this is something that we weren't even gonna get into on the show, but like there was this woman that ran for Congress in Georgia's 6th District by the name of Brenda Lopez, who, when asked on a endorsement questionnaire, I think for, like, Our Revolution or something, um, if she supported reparation, she was like, yeah, as long as it includes Native people. And I literally had never thought about that before.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: Her land back is, like, a movement, one that I need to learn more about, frankly, but, like, the idea of, like, the the... the the other forms of loss that these folks have incurred and um thinking about what that means in terms of giving you know repairing that reparating that uh you know it makes sense to me it makes sense what that looks like and whether or not there is a strong movement for that like in, in 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 indigenous communities um well, like, what do you think? Down to fight together. I'm down to have you back to get y'all reparations too. Like, let's do this.
2: Like in the hypothetical situation, let's say that it was like the government was like, "All right, we are going to spend the next like three or four years setting up the infrastructure to where we can repay some some form of restitution of uh, reparations to the Native American community. Like, do you think that that would open up the floodgates? For, I don't mean floodgates in a bad way, but I just mean, do you think that would start that would like start a new era of um, I guess is reconciliation the right word for it? But do you think that like black reparations would be next or or uh, American descendants of slave reparations would be next? And then, like, would the domino effect happen and the Kraken be released? No, yeah,
3: you know what I honestly think would happen if they started talking about. Reparations for Indigenous people, Black people would torpedo it.
2: Damn, I kind of think you're right. No one
3: would make it <laughs> anything because we would take, we would go. We would all fight against each other
2: about who should get it first. Who
3: should get it first? And you know, I, the, the you know, all this quantifying of who we are racially based on the one drop and the twenty five percent has been so effective. And in, in the ways that in the media and in our discourse we talk about race has been so so effective in dividing us Like i can't even blame people for wanting to fight each other because like that shit's been programmed from on high
2: to the point that it's straight up weaved into the fabric of the culture yeah,
3: that's by design because if we they know if we come together they're fucked if all of us if the white working class and the Gays and all of the immigrants and the indigenous folks, and we fucking banded together and rose up. They would be fucked. Well, they don't want that, so they're like, "Well, you know."
2: (laughs) And with that, let's uh, let's talk some rapidy rap rap shit. Let's get into the music.
0: AT and T connects an ode to podcasts. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. ATT.
4: Snag a Job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all in one solution for hiring high quality employees who can cover all your needs.
2: So the first rapper up is Dreesus. Uh, he is an indigenous rapper who's a member of the, the First Nations tribe. He's an activist in Calgary, Alberta. He gained a good deal of notoriety with the release of his 2014 album, Indian Warpath. And this is his track, Warpath. Let's check it out. I dig like, for me, like, the, the cool thing about it is I like how he's going in about, like, his culture and his heritage and his people and shit. Yeah, but stylistically, with, yeah. stylistically, he's doing it as if he was, like, repping his set. You know what I'm saying? So it's like if you were listening to, like, a rapper who's, like, a... Like heavy, like Crip rapper or something like that. Like the way that they would be going on for their crew is like how he's like going in for his tribe and shit in the song. I I really dig that.
3: Yeah, it's, it's equal parts like commentary on the oppressive conditions that they have to deal with, as well as like celebration of like the arrowheads, the buckskins, and the in fa- the face painting and the headdresses. And yeah. like it, do- it does it does in, in so many ways, like perfectly fit the mold of, like, modern American hip-hop. Like, with twin sense of, like, analysis and uplift of, like, yo, what people out here can't eat? But, like, we're looking real... I I, I really admire that, actually.
2: Well, shit. I mean, um, there's a... The next one kind of takes that concept that you just brought up and kind of takes it to the next level. This is... um, by the Snotty Nose Rez Kids. (laughs) This is a track called Bougie Natives. Now, the Snotty Nose Rez Kids are another Canadian group. They're from the First Nation as well. They're a hip-hop duo composed of Haisla rapper Young D., and young
3: tribes.
2: Yeah,
3: they're currently based in Vancouver.
4: Okay,
3: there's bougie natives. I mean, I love it because like the visuals, like you've got all these different kinds of people in like in native dress. Some folks look more like like typically North American, fancy Hipster. uh like, a picture thing going on. And they yeah. look, like facially look different with regards to the variety of different ways to look native like tradition yeah. to dress uh i just think that it's really dope representationally because like it's not you know the the last video it was sort of like they're riding horses they're hanging out in front of a, a, a tp they're like you know standing around the fire
2: there's a lot so of like-, like uh there's a lot of like ancient uh Native, like, references and shit, like the Arrowhead and where... Yeah,
3: these, but, these, but, like, you know, it's okay. Like, I feel like th- this video is giving license to, like, yo, it's all right if you're indigenous and also...
2: Be part of it, the modern like, world.
3: You know, you're your wearing your gauges and you're, you know, like, making your tea in a little Chemex. Yeah. <laughs> uh, boiler thing i don't know what those things are called you know those you know, listeners i know
0: you know what
2: i'm talking about i know what you're talking about all
3: right. <laughs> That's all that doesn't matter i also as a linguist really enjoyed what i would i what i think was like native slang
2: yeah Did i think he was first? putting a lot of native slang and even just some like native words were dispersed through the verse and stuff like that like he was saying he kept referencing nietzsche and then he yeah. said nietzsche please yeah that made me chuckle
3: yeah yeah It's a cool it's a cool mixture
2: like, I love it when it's going to sound fucked up, but I'm not a linguist like you, so I can't word it the same way. But I like it when hip hop is appropriated correctly into different cultures. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't know. It's just like that's just like. To me, that is. I don't is...
3: to say that either. There's certain sorts of like ways of appropriating it into different contexts, and not even I know the term appropriation is Has, like, like very negative, located, but like yeah. different ways of like you know remixing. I mean, hip hop is all about remixing things, mm-hmm. and so there's certain ways to appro- to to remix cultural conventions while like honoring and like sh- while showing that you are like. Well versed in
2: them, yeah, exactly. You
3: know what I mean? Like, there's there's appropriation where it's like you clearly don't know what you're talking about.
2: Exactly. I never felt
3: appropriation where it's like, oh no, you fucking know what listen, is what is good.
2: You, now you like, know me.
3: Where it's like, oh, you remix the shit and you clearly love the craft.
2: Like, now you know me and you know the type of hip hop that I just generally listen to, uh, for leisure, like the sort of stuff that I'm into personally. So that song was definitely a bit. A bit lighter than the usual shit that I like to listen to, but I never felt like I was in the hands of Posers while it was on, you know what I'm saying? Like, the beat is jamming, the flow is solid, and it's just like, when you, when you use hip-hop to like, empower yourself and your own identity, I think that's when hip-hop is like, truly like, at its peak, you know what I'm saying? And they just own that shit, so I love that. That was a dope Yeah,
3: that's dope. Our last song is from JB, the first lady uh, who helped found the indigenous hip hop collective in East Vancouver. It was a key part of the growing force of Canadian indigenous women who are using hip hop to stand in their power. JB, the first lady has songs about suicide and murder of indigenous women, which is a huge uh, issue, um, particularly in Canada, missing and murdered indigenous women. Like, it's just like, incredibly disproportionate and not being taken seriously by the Canadian government. But so this is her song still here.
5: Section Hayden, debating, truth and
3: reconciliation
1: fading, dividing and shading. But we still here, we're still here.
3: That
2: show's dope. I dope. I really think that that is an effective use of a song to bring like awareness to a particular issue like the the, the refrain of these, the hook is crazy
3: yo the hook is crazy and like the whole like it again like remixes the hip-hop traditions of like of of critique but like a sense of resilience at the same time where she's like we're still here we, yeah. we ain't got drinking we- water they are here we got missing mothers and daughters but like we still here like that is the hip the hip-hop is shit I
2: fucking have heard like it, there really is no difference in the sentiment that she's getting across And like we ain't with nowhere we, we ain't, ain't, go ain't go nowhere, nowhere. Yeah. we can't be same same shit yo. I, and, oh. yo
3: I know that like it's gonna sound like this is somewhat sexist or something but I really mean this in a purely like a purely craft way and not because they're both women but her cadence really gave me a no name vibe in the best way, in yeah. that like, super unpredictable. Like she doesn't have to adhere to any sort of like prescribed sense of meter or yeah, like, rhymes like or like. I feel know, like Lilas Flow, flow, flow. is like she that just, too. Like, went in and just did her thing.
2: Doesn't Lilas Flow feel like it's like that too? A little bit too. Yeah. yeah. No, that was that was dope. Um, dope.
3: I mean, I we have one more. Song yeah, on we that. have one more.
2: That wasn't the last one. We do have one more that I want to get to. This last joint is by Lightning Cloud. It was a track "Walk Alone." Now, Lightning Cloud is an LA-based native hip-hop duo consisting of Christy Lightning and MC Red Cloud. I've known about Red Cloud for years. Like as a freestyler, he's he you know he's put out some videos that. Have definitely from cats who freestyle and in, in battle and shit like that. You know he he's definitely has attention to those cats, but I didn't know that he was in this group and what type of music he made outside of that scene, in that context. So here's Walk Alone. First
4: time I read a man's
0: that
2: I Yo, that that beat fucking knocks. The
3: vocal intonation like his vocal stylings are just ill
2: it reminds (laughs) us of a friend of ours friend of the show uh, Masashi Zero Zero. but yeah they have a similar uh, I don't even I think it's not even necessarily the cadence but it's the voice like they're they're coming from the same register
3: rough whisper
2: yeah it's like that that whiskey and cigarettes voice I don't even think Masashi smokes
3: (laughs) Tom Tom Waits was from like you know Fountain.
2: Yeah. <laughs> That's a good one. is going to love that shit. But um, no, that, that song was dope. It uh, seemed to be like sort of a, almost a PSA about homelessness. And from what I could tell from the video was, was that Las Vegas? What looked video? Like, looked like Vegas to me. But, um, it might have been L.A. Yeah, it could have been L.A. That could have been Skid Row. That is true. Well, um, before we wrap it up, I do just want to give like a little honorable mentions list of some other indigenous uh, hip-hop artists just because we don't have enough time to go through everybody and do a snippet of everybody but shout out you guys should check out def one uh, Helen back West Coast Grizz Superman um, an illustrated mess uh, phrase complexity lots of fresh indigenous artists out there for y'all to check out but that's going to wrap it up for us this week. I think we are going to close this off in a little bit more of a special way. Since you guys hear us enough, instead of us giving you guys the raps to close off the show, we're going to bring back Lila June to do one of her acapella pieces for y'all.
3: It's so dope. I'm super excited for y'all to hear it. Yo, hit us with some <laughs> bars! Yes!
5: Okay, um... Hopefully my beatbox doesn't sound weird in this little microphone. Um, We were all given sacred duties to this land. Take care of Mother Earth and she will help you understand that everything we need is in the palm of her hand. No need to drill, mine, conquer, or extract. With faith in the creator, we will blaze a brand new path. When we let go of fear, the greed turns into laughter. Unity of all people, that is what we're after. I'm cruising down the red road with sweetgrass on my dashboard. Used to drug and drink, but now I'm sober, now I'm faster. Sharp as a tacky, told me, can't hold me back. Back now. Yeah, I just want to build a new world for my children. With love, prayer, and unity, this nation is rebuilding up from the ash of genocide and division. Red, black, yellow, white as one, that's the vision. Every race participates in this new beginning. Sacred is the masculine and sacred is the feminine. Infinite, indigenous, continuous, deliberate. Nothing can stop the people once they got their intention set. Some people say that the land can be owned. Some people say that the land can be owned but deep in our hearts. We know that isn't so because we don't even own this flesh or this bone. No, we can't take it with us on the soul's journey home. No, the only thing we own is the lessons that we know when we wake from the slumber to remember we are one. One beautiful people under one beautiful sun. We must also release all claims to the earth because she don't belong to us. We belong to her.
2: Oh, that is dope. Super fresh.
3: Thanks for tuning in. I'm Lingua Franca.
2: I'm Dope Knife.
3: And we are waiting on reparations for our native brothers and sisters too.
2: So hurry up and see y'all next week. Mwah. Waiting on Reparations is a production of iHeartRadio.
3: Listen to Waiting on Reparations on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.